all of our members, regardless of where they put themselves, regardless of however they identify, they're all providing trusted content and services for specialist communities. And that is our, if you like, you know, our, our strap line when, when I'm, you know, when I'm presenting to the board, when I'm kind of really thinking about the new direction of any sort of new area or program, we're always thinking back to that. Welcome to Media Voices, everybody. We take a look at everything to do with the media, whether that's news or views over the past week. I'm Chris Sutcliffe. I'm Esther Thorpe. And I'm Peter Houston. And I'm the only one that hasn't had a beer this evening. Right? That that will become very clear to the listeners well, as know, we go. That's what happens when you go on a holiday and you force us to record on a Friday <laughs> evening. It's more often. Um, that clip was from my interview with Sajida Morali, who is CEO of the Professional Publishers Association, the PPA. So we talked about what her publishing background brings to the organisation, what's top of mind for the publishers the association represents as the effects of the pandemic rumble on, and what defines a magazine publisher today? Peter's favourite question. (laughs) I saw you actually in the notes going all in on that, so I'm delighted to to get to the nibs. But before that, we do want to remind you that the tickets are on sale for the Publisher Podcast Summit. So so the agenda is going to be released at the end of the month. You can use code POD20 for 20% off tickets. Esther, why don't you tell people the timeline for a rollout of information on that? So yeah, we're going, we've already got um, some really good speakers lined up. Um, I cannot wait to release the agenda at the end of July. That's basically because I'm going on holiday next week, and uh, so yeah, you just kind of have to wait a bit longer. Um, yeah, August um, we'll be rolling all that out. Um, so yeah, do get your hands on tickets as soon as possible. Um, I do just want to do a big shout out to Collingwood Advisory, What's New in Publishing, and Pod News, who have joined us as partners. Yes. So we're excited to promote the event with with those guys. That's some good company. Pod20 is the coolest discount code <laughs> ever. And if you want to get tickets, you go to publisherpodcastsummit.com. Um, way before any information gets released, we're going to go through today's top story. And earlier in the week, The Atlantic made 165 years worth of its journalism available online. This is a great story because yeah, we're yeah. not we're not having to deal with psychopolitics or weird platform stuff or whatever. This is just a genuinely nice publishing story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Love it. Anyway. So go on. So the Atlantic has taken their archives. The Atlantic was, I guess, founded in 1857. Mm -hmm. And they've taken all their archives and they've put it online. Uh, They haven't just dumped it all in one big folder for you to sort of shuffle through. Yeah, one big PDF. Uh, Yeah, they've done like they've done a great job in in terms of they've made it all searchable. You can go and buy issue, Um, and they're also taking the time to their editors are choosing interesting uh, editions, interesting articles, interesting writers. I mean, the writers list for the Atlantic is insane. Because they've got some I, really big historical figures as well, haven't they? Yeah, sort of... Mark Twain. Mm-hmm. It's Mark insane, and I think that that is too. some of the cleverest stuff they could have done around the marketing, which is actually, you know, th- this, all, this is all stuff that is interesting to people who are not just interested in history, but interested in kind of the context for history as well. Yeah. So by servicing those on social, people have gone, that's so good, one extra benefits of a subscription well of course it's primarily for subscribers but i think they're making it available to students and academics and stuff yep. as well um 
I mean, just... there's, a, there's a revenue thing here as well, isn't there? Because Nick Thompson uh, touched on this in one of the interviews he did where he said that um, he wouldn't say how much they'd spent on it. I dread to think. Oh, my God. It's going to be <laughs> unbelievable. I was thinking about that. The cost to have done this yeah. must be astronomical. But he reckoned that the investment would basically pay itself off in within two years. Was it two years or three years? I thought three years. Uh, I'd tweak is saying three years. Two to three years. There you go. Okay. You're both right. We're both right. We're both right. We're very smart. <laughs> um, so he, he, said, he said that that would pay itself off within two to three years. And I think that that in itself sort of speaks volumes to how important things like, I don't want to say it's all down to search traffic, but that kind of archival traffic and traffic back to Evergreen stuff mm. can actually be for publishers. Like I've, I've seen estimates that it can bring in between anything mm. between like 30 to 60% of, of a publisher's traffic. So mm. if you suddenly got, you've not just got the historical, the historical significance, you've got, um, yeah, I, I suppose it's that search element as well. Like, you know, the Guardian does those pictures that's like, this article is more than a year old. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. This article is 164 years yeah. old. Listen, <laughs> medical medical science has moved on ever so slightly since the days of Mark Twain. Yeah, I bet there's not... some properly strange stuff in mm. there. Oh, there's going to be. But that's the point. But I think we all agree that probably more publishers should be doing it. Well, actually, it's something, it's something Charlotte Schaefer's, when she spoke to us a couple of weeks ago, said. Um, so she's the digital... Um, she's the digital director, director for Rolling Stone. Um and I basically said, well, you know, if, if you're giving publishers advice on audience growth, what would you suggest? And she said, the first thing is archives, archives and mm. evergreen content, because there's so much there that you can, even stuff that you'd think would date, like um, she, she said, because she's worked with quite a lot of culture and fashion publishers, she said things like fashion show um, articles and, and um, photography from the ni- from the 90s and the 2000s. She said, there's a huge, like, interest in those from yeah. even people that weren't born at that time that it, it it's sort of this this idea of capitalizing on on the the cultural um cultural groundswell around it do either of you follow the pessimists archive on twitter no, no. it is phenomenal so it sources um news stories from say like the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s where people basically downplay a change like the rise of phones for instance mobile phones they were just like <laughs> it will never catch on they they do it for like the rise of the, the the train or the automobile where they go like if you go across 30 your organs will liquefy uh. <laughs> so there is like a proper um cultural benefit to having this stuff available which i think is something that you know in as much as we're talking about this from a publisher revenue perspective there's a cultural benefit to this as well yeah i think when you look at so much well the newspapers are a great example of this so much of that stuff these days just disappears link raw and yeah um newspapers that take articles down because they don't want to be caught out chatting shit <laughs> um, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I think this is just amazing. I love well, it. Well, that's really, really cool. In preparation for this podcast, I was looking at the uh, the Times um, website, and I'm just going to read verbatim from them. They said, "If you're looking for an article that appeared recently, try searching on the Times website. There are articles from the Times and Sunday Times dating back to 2003, and for older articles dated from 1785 to 1985, <laughs> try searching the Times archive. Um, so there's like a gap there where the Times doesn't have." They do not personally have any of that um, that archive content yeah. for online stuff before two thousand three, but this is just such a you know if Peter a couple of weeks ago you were talking about being the paper of record, yeah. this is how you demonstrate that in the digital age, isn't it? I just, the archive thing I get, I know it's so geeky as a as a magazine <laughs> geek. 
I just love that. I love that idea of this being preserved like that. And there's, there's other people do brilliant things with the Esquire. I'm always banging on about the Esquire Classic site. Mm. It's just classic.esquire.com. And, and it's they do that whole thing where, oh, we're resurfacing a, a, an article by Gay Tilly, so they're doing mm. whatever. And actually putting the curation on top of it is just the value. It's just amazing. And that's what Charlotte was talking about in that interview, is the value of the curation you can put around it. Well, Esther, we've we've heard some okay. So, like resurfacing resurfacing archive content is has been a big play for magazines before. Do you remember? I think it was was it Bauer who made all their um, exercise stuff available as part of an archive for people yeah. over the course of like the last four or five years. They they started rolling that out. And there's a lot of publishers that have gone. Um, I know Readly have been doing loads of back issues with publishers, um, but yeah, this feels slightly different. That. I suppose because it's not the PDFs that they've just gone and uploaded, which would have been a far cheaper way of doing it. Yeah. Um, this idea of almost bringing all of that forward into the digital age, which is possibly well, not fair on PDF replicas, but. Okay. Well, I think then we need to talk about, um, as you've just flagged, this idea that you can do this in a variety of ways. You can make this part and parcel of a subscription. Or I think, for instance, the was it The Economist who auctioned off a bunch of NFTs of archival content no it was um south china morning post um they've they're sort of releasing this collection so their first collection they did was um a 1997 premium series featuring a hundred a thousand sort of boxes or collections of the newspaper's coverage of 1997's momentous events um i i won't let you guess how old i was at the time so i I don't (laughs) remember 1997 Um, but there's things like you know they've, they've got sort of the front pages of when Diana died and things like that. Mm. Um, and the collection they released actually sold out in two hours, <laughs> um, netting them a hundred thousand pounds. So they sold each one for it was about seventy four pounds. So you know there's it's there's now some... worth seventy four pence. <laughs> <laughs> but I swear I, wasn't that the Economist that of... had made like millions from auctioning off some of them. I think there was like a wasn't that cover art. Didn't they yeah, it was cover. Those are the right, Alison yeah. Wonderland cover. Exactly, it was Lewis Carroll. You're right. Yeah. Aimed at covers as well. Lewis Carroll. Yeah. Lewis Carroll, Alison Wonderland author. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. That threw me for a second. I was like, Lewis Carroll's not right. Lewis Carroll's in like One Direction or something. And you have. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Uh, There's loads of ways of doing this. So DC Thompson did the, did the thing with their podcast. Mm. Pass it on podcast, which is like household tips from the nineteen fifties. Like here's how you clean yeah, your windows with a that. newspaper. Um, was it the, the Associated Press did it with images and then ended up in hot water because they had they they were selling oh off that one God. of the migrant boat. That was that was hor- that was horrific. Yeah, yeah, that was awful. But as part and parcel of a subscription, this makes so much sense. I would love to see more places do it. And I was looking at the uh, British newspaper archives, which also is subspaced, and there's just some amazing stuff in there. It's it's unreal. It does make me a little bit sad that if you're in like a murder mystery now, you you can't just go to the library and look at it up on microfiche. You just log into your computer. Um, yeah. But apart from that, this is all good. I think there's, sure there's still good. There's yeah. quite a different approach here between, I suppose, news and magazine publishers. Because if you're mm. a news publisher, probably your archive is going to be more of a. It's that sort of idea of owning part of a momentous event. If you're going to look at selling off or or did or. I suppose digitizing or anything like that. Whereas for magazine publishers, there's an awful lot of content that costs an awful lot to create that yeah. really doesn't need much tweaking in order to make it relevant. And I'm thinking, if, if you if you publish recipes, for example, um, 
there's no reason you can't <laughs> you can't use your archive as a way of basically gosh getting cheap <laughs> uh, getting slightly cheaper content which sounds really think, mercenary but you know what i mean i think I once you've got the infrastructure those, yeah definitely i was just thinking of some of those recipes from the 60s that were just like just put everything in gelatin <laughs> spine it, and they all just look disgusting but it's valuable to have that out there so that we can Co- look back and go the 60s were stupid <laughs> cocktail, cocktail sticks through yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> local archives are going to be just as interesting and they're where i think we're going to lose some of this stuff yeah because there's not the revenue base to, to archive this kind of stuff and make it publicly accessible. Wait, how did we turn this into a bad news thing? Okay, it's no, you're not, right, okay. But hang, all right, so hang on. Let me let me just go on northamptonchronicle.co.uk and let's see what would be lost to time. Here we go, top story. Pasta loses job for relationship with vacuum cleaner. That would be lost to time. <laughs> no, no. I Pastor. want to know more. Send me a link. What? <laughs> Northamptoncron.co.uk slash news slash crime. <laughs> Former pastor is sentenced at Northampton Court after performing sexual acts on a Henry Hoover at church. <laughs> it had to be Henry, didn't it? Yeah, bloody Henry is always up to something. That's being filed under crime. Yeah. <laughs> should, we, should we move on to news in brief? Yes, please. Okay, and this, this you know, we, we like to be positive or we like to be positive in the nibs i think but this this is positive or negative depending on who you are so it's been a bad week or two for google so the wall street journal reported earlier in the week that the search and advertising giant was proposing to split its buy and sell sides for digital advertising um which would in theory allow the networks to interact with google's ad sales so it follows years and years and years of complaints of monopolistic behavior from google however its proposal was just splitting up, <laughs> splitting that ad sales department up between itself and itself in the form of the parent company Alphabet. <laughs> and apparently, the US Department of Justice hasn't gone for that, which is shocking to me. Um, so, yeah, that's still rumbling on. It seems like they're going to be taken to court for sort of antitrust stuff. Meanwhile, TikTok is more stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, TikTok is more popular for video among the mm. young. And at an industry event, a Google exec noted that more core Google services, including search and maps, are also being impacted by a growing preference for social media and videos as the first stop for younger users. Search. Who is what? Why? Who is searching for stuff on YouTube and TikTok rather than Google? The the youth. The youth. The youth. Why oh, those pesky dude. kids? We'd have got away with it if it had been I guess it's, for them. I, <laughs> I guess it goes back to that idea that you use Google Search to find trusted recommendations for a lot of stuff, and you can do that on TikTok. So if you if you're not on, God, is it? I can't remember if he's on Instagram or TikTok, but Scouse Ghetto Gourmet. If you're in Liverpool and you want <laughs> restaurant recommendations from from a local, look up Scouse Ghetto Gourmet because he is brilliant. And then we go to Northampton Church as if we want to <laughs> Henry Hoover. <laughs> okay. Don't really know how to follow that. Oh, I know. Mm. Turns out the best print magazines on earth are made by a company that doesn't even make magazines. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I'm so excited. So excited to hear what you're going to say here. Condé Nast. <laughs> 
Press Gazette's got this interview with Adam Baidawi. He's from Condé Nast. He's working on GQ as well as a sort of broader editorial role. And it's a great interview, actually. It talks about um, the changes that they've made in their organisational structure, their move away from regional editions towards a more kind of centralised thing. All sensible, all really cool. Although there was some use... shade about the print stuff, though. <laughs> there was does, a little bit, yeah. There is, but he uses this word sensical, which is I'd never heard Nonsense. before. That, that is a nonsensical word. It sounds it like it's a, a sort of word of the day calendar type thing. I looked it up and there's one says it's a neologism and the other one said it's in, it's uh, from the 18th century. So I've got no clue what sensical uh, is about, but obviously it means... If, if we had access to print archives, we could go back and check that. <sighs> Obviously, it means it doesn't make sense. So there's, there is, a, it's a weird interview in some ways, but it's a good interview because he talks about the business and where they're going with subscriptions. But you know the bit that really just grinds my gears? Yeah! Yes. Right. Make up your bastard minds! <laughs> are you making the best print magazines in the world or are you not a magazine company? Stop being ashamed of what you're doing in print. Just get on with it. Do really. Conte does great work. Of course they do. Don't, They're trying Conte to have the cake magazines and eat them. Yeah. <laughs> just, they don't need to say that. Just get on with it. Stop undermining what people do for a living and just get on with it. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Well done, My favourite bit of that story was um, when they were saying about the, the efficiencies and the fact that they've, you know, they've centralised a lot of the publications to increase efficiency. It's because um, when Rami Malek did... Um, uh, the Queen film a couple mm. years ago. They had him on three separate covers of <laughs> um, the same magazine <laughs> across the purpose. world, and they just hadn't they hadn't coordinated. So I think he was on like three GQ covers. So he got paid three times for three covers. Yes, and he also had to do had to do three interviews, well, yeah, photo shoots and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, so yeah, the, the the interview was sort of saying yeah that that was a colossal waste of our team's time and his time <laughs> when we could have just done it once. <laughs> Um, the information is launching a social network just for its subscribers. Uh, it plans to include a Reddit-like news feed, direct messaging, and a directory. Um, the information's founder and CEO, Jessica Lesson, told Axios that um, she said she thought it was clear networking on the internet was a mess, yep. which I wholeheartedly agree with. Um, platforms like linked, Facebook and LinkedIn, which were originally created for networking, have basically just got so big and focused on other things that they've lost the ability to help users create meaningful connections. Um, yep. And the, the, I think the reason they're launching it was interesting because they want to focus on adding more value to the subscriber experience rather than being like a meaningful revenue generator in itself. So uh, all of that makes sense to me. I, I don't necessarily, I mean, it's not going to be a massive social network, obviously, but in terms mm. of providing a way to connect that community, I think that resonated with, with us quite a lot because there was, you know, we're trying to do a similar thing. Mm. Um, obviously not building our own social network, but trying to find a way to, to connect some of the brilliant, high-value people who listen to our podcast together. I'm, uh, well, we've got news yeah. on this one coming soon, haven't we? Yeah. Very soon, very soon. And if we had our own Reddit-like news feed, we could share it on there, but we don't yet. Mm. Anyway, as we've alluded to a number of times during the news and briefs, we've actually covered all of those in our newsletter this week. So if you'd like to be the first to get those stories, you can get, we choose just the top four stories every day. Um, we sometimes bicker about which ones go in. <laughs> um, but you can go to our website, voices.media, and sign up for our daily newsletter on there. And we, we promise that we work quite hard to comb through all of the media news that happens just to bring you the top four. 
quite hot. You're underselling that. Well, speaking of underselling, we think what we do actually delivers quite a lot of value. That digestible four-story newsletter every single day of the working week, plus the podcast for you know the the days that that comes out on Monday. Over the, well, how many do you think we do a year? Like thirty plus. Easily. Yeah. Well, this is 229. That's crazy to me. But if you think that that actually delivers significant value to you, we would love you to either share the newsletter, share the podcast, or go to our Ko-Fi page and actually donate some money. So if you do feel like supporting us either monthly or on a one-off basis, then do head across to voices.media slash support, where you can kick us a couple of quid to keep the lights on. If we're better on beer, buy us another one. (laughs) This week I spoke to Sajida Morali, CEO of the PPA. Sajida's got a really strong background in the commercial side of publishing. She's formerly been the Chief Revenue Officer at the New Statesman Media Group and has been on the commercial side of publishers like Euromoney, InfoPro and Incisive. So I started by asking her if that commercial experience was something she's hoping to bring to her work with other publishers at the PPA. However, I was a banana and I forgot to plug my podcast microphone in, so please do excuse the fact that my audio in a moment is going to be a bit shoddier than usual. So uh, you're right, I do have a lot of commercial uh, experience. And, you know, uh, if I think about the brief for me as the um, the CEO of the PPA, um, it's very much around a a transformational agenda. And, you know, really to ensure that our focus as the PPA uh, is around the new and changing business models um, of our members, right? And having a commercial background and coming from the industry and, you know, I know you mentioned the experience, but, you know, over 20 years, of um, commercial experience within within the sector, both on B2B and consumer. I think what it's done, it's just given me an edge to be able to, I guess, really understand the challenges from having lived and breathed it in my career as well. Um, it just puts me, you know, in a really good position to build out a program that, that meets the needs of members and, um, you know, we're going to continue doing that as we build out build out the PPA strategy. And we're, you know, we've got we've got three pillars that we're really focused on, um, which is around people, products, and audience. Um, you know, and and commercial business models kind of flows into all of that as well. So, absolutely. You mentioned previously that you're you've been sort of talking to a lot of the members um, since you started, just sort of trying to get get a sense of what they want. What is the vibe on the ground at the moment from publishers? How, how are they feeling? I don't want to say post-pandemic, but as the effects of the pandemic sort of start to ease a little bit. Yeah, so, um, well, f- I think, I think firstly, just stepping back just a minute, you know, the, 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 the conversations that I've been having with members has been very much about, you know, what do you need from us? What, what is the PPA's role in, in all of this and bringing us as together as an industry? Um, and, you know, we've been thinking a lot about, um, how we can, you know, help with that. So, um, we actually launched sort of three key areas that we're helping members with. Um, we launched PPA Collaborate, which is very much the PPA's role in, um, bringing together groups of members, similar challenges, you know, helping to really facilitate discussion. Um, and it needs somebody like the PPA to kind of, 
sometimes bang heads together and kind of get <laughs> us moving in a particular direction. Um, and obviously, as we run these groups, there's a lot of feedback that comes back to us about, you know, word on the street, so to speak, or the vibe or the feeling, that the, the mood of the room. Um, and, I, and I can touch on that in a minute as well. And then the other two areas that we that we really sort of pin down as, you know, the role of the PPA. First one is uh, PPA progress, which is very much about moving, I guess, the dial on the reputation of the sector. So things like our commitment to net zero, um, you know, the, the 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 topic of EDNI more broadly, and sort of how we can help members really kind of make strides in that space. And then finally, it's PPA decodes, right? Which I think this is really about. I guess unpacking some of the really difficult questions and stuff that's just going on in our landscape. You know, it's quite a it's quite a blurred landscape at the moment, and <laughs> especially when it comes to things like the digital publishing space. Um, you know, some of the stuff going on in the in the public affairs arena as well. And you know, we we really see in our role as kind of um, helping to um, unpack, simplify helping members to understand like what what's going on what does this mean for you so that they can make really informed decisions about how they sort of move ahead with their strategy um but you know go, going back to uh the the original question i suppose uh, is you know how how are how are people feeling about rebuilding from the pandemic um you know the topic of hybrid working is coming up a lot mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone has really got into a, a perfect rhythm on that one, you know, ourselves included. Um, we, we've actually, uh, we, we, we've uh, agreed on sort of Wednesday plus one. So Wednesday's our team day. And then people tend to come in one or two other times. And, you know, obviously the office is open for those that want it. Um, and, and even now we still get the odd kind of WhatsApp. We've got quite a small team. So we're, we're all on a WhatsApp group. And even now it's like, oh, it's Wednesday. Are we all coming in. And it's like, well, yes, that's what <laughs> you know. So I, I, I still don't think everyone's got that. I, I've not heard of anyone sort of tell me we've absolutely nailed it. So that's, that's definitely still an issue. Um, you know, just reflecting, I suppose, on um, some of the other points as well. You know, if the pandemic wasn't enough, we've now got sort of new things to be dealing with, right? We've got the war in Ukraine, supply chain challenges, uh, you know, for some of those that are sort of working in the print space, the sort of percentage increases has been absolutely phenomenal around, you know, access to paper, printing costs, you know, all of those things as well. So, um I think that with the whole cost of living crisis, I think there is a real feeling of actually we've just got to batten down the hatches and and sort of make some um, uh, early decisions around how we're going to plan out for the next few months. Um, and obviously talent flows into that as well, you know, talent acquisition, retention. Um, yeah, that, that's all kind of topics, I suppose, that are, are coming up quite regularly. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on some of those in a minute. But I, I know one that's come up recently. Um, Condé Nast said that they were, you know, no longer a magazine company. We've got companies like IDG that have said that they're sort of pivoting away from publishing. So, and, and I know a lot of the PPA's membership base has been, I'm going to sort of quote traditional magazine publishers. So I suppose, what does a magazine publisher look like today? Like, who are you representing? Oh, Esther, I, I absolutely <laughs> love this question because um, it's, it's you know, it's something I've really been grappling with, right, since I started because 
even those that call themselves magazine publishers are pretty multi-platform and you know and in fact you know Peter and I we met at a conference a few weeks ago and we we were having exactly this conversation um I think it's always worth revisiting what we actually mean when we say magazine um and you know the comment from Condé and IDG I think it's worth I think it's just worth thinking about you know what what do we mean when we say magazine and you know fun fact I suppose is the word magazine actually originates from um, an Arabic word, machzan uh, or khazana, right, which is um, a, a storehouse or a store up, right, and was often used to describe um, stores of books for certain groups of people. So if what we mean by the word magazine is that, you know, the business is creating, curating, providing expert content, um, trusted content, obviously, in sort of various formats for specialist groups, then absolutely, we're magazines, right? But if what we mean by magazine is that it's a printed product that you pick up on a newsstand when you sort of visit in the supermarket or WH Smith or whatever, it's, you know, no, not anymore. And I, I don't think um, many of our members have been that for a very long time. So, um, yeah, I, I would I would say that we just need to, you know, go go back a step to answer that question. I did not know about the origins of the word magazine. Every day there is a school go. day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I suppose partly related to that, um, diversification has been sort of the hot topic for the last five years for publishers. You've got a lot of them going into, you know, quite clever sort of data products, intelligence things. Um, sometimes diversification that seems to be absolutely nothing to do with publishing at all. Does that get challenging for industry associations representing publishers when you've got publishers that are sort of almost, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Dennis was almost sort of car sales at one point. Yeah, I mean, um, yes, it is difficult um, because um, obviously you're constantly thinking about the broad variety of members that you have. Um, and actually, you know, Autovia have come back on board as a member because of our, our you know, our new strategic direction. Um, and I think, you know, if, you, if we look across the membership, we've got a real array of businesses, right? You've got the more traditional publishing businesses or magazine businesses as we think about them. Um, and you've got those at the other end, which are completely driven by sort of data strategies, um, you know, some make their money through advertising, other through subscriptions and, you know, selling their content. Um, most of them doing a bit of both. Uh, you have those working in the consumer space, other in business media. So it's, you're, you're right, it's a real broad, uh, you know, broad variety. And um, I think, I think for us, it's, uh, you know, it's really stepping back again and saying, right, we could re really get bogged down in how people identify and you know what you're calling yourself are you a publisher are you a martech business etc but ultimately that you know the thing that really binds our membership together is it goes back to what I said earlier right about the the origin of the word and you know all of our members regardless of where they put themselves regardless of however they identify they're all providing trusted content and services for specialist communities and that is our if you like you know our, our strap line when, when I'm you know when I'm presenting to the board when I'm kind of really thinking about the new direction of any sort of new area or program we're always thinking back to that and I, I also think it is worth remembering that 
it's really difficult for any organization to be everything to everyone all of the time, right? So when we're building out our different programs, we're always thinking about, right, are we giving enough value to our different groups of members? And, you know, we're obsessing about putting member value at the core of everything we do. And it always goes back to that, like, you know, which members are we servicing here? And are we giving, you know, are we kind of, you know, making sure that there's enough going on across the piece? So yeah, it is difficult. But it's it's a constant consideration as well in terms of how what, what we're up to. Um, pre-pandemic, I know the PPA did a lot of sort of pop-up events and stuff in London, and, and there was quite a lot sort of centred around that London publisher um, life. Have you found the pandemic's made it easier in terms of sort of what you do to reach publishers outside of London, or is it meant that everybody's sort of scattered a bit and it's harder to draw them together? Yeah, so our, I mean, our membership is right across the UK, and obviously we've got a really big sort of um membership within Scotland as well right so um what we are trying to do is have a real mix of um you know continuing the opportunity that comes with um the virtual sort of world and you know we we continue getting our steering groups together on uh, virtual platforms um, but we're also mixing it up with events and we we obviously had our festival we had about 500 people on the day in tobacco dock uh, a few months ago um, we had our awards which was conveniently sandwiched between two train strikes and <laughs> despite having almost 50 percent of the place settings sort of changed on the day um, you know that was a, a tremendous event as well right so I think there's still a real appetite to get together in person but we're being a bit more thoughtful around um, you know how often we're asking people to get together or travel to London if they're not in London we're trying to be thoughtful about you know how we um, manage people's time so for example we had a a masterclass around data strategies um, and what we tried to do is for some of our independent publishers um, who were attending it we actually did our breakfast uh, sorry our brunch event literally the um, straight after the masterclass so that people weren't having to sort of come in for a couple of hours and then head back, but they could make the most of their morning or their day. So we're just, yeah, we're just considering that when we are, um, you know, doing our plan for the year. And um, But it's still very much a mix of face-to-face and, and sort of the, the virtual space. Yeah, I was going to ask what you're doing in the virtual space. Because um, again, during, during the pandemic, I think the PPA was really at the front of quite a lot of the um, virtual events and on Zoom a lot. Yeah, so a lot of our steering groups are, um, uh, you know, our kind of morning Zoom meetings, for example. Um, and, you know, what we're finding, I guess, is that we are able to get much more of a variety of um, members in the room because of that. So that works really well. Um, we're continuing with sort of webinars and, and, and things. And I guess the other thing that we're also doing is when we are holding, you know, briefings. So at the beginning of the year, we did a, a whole series on um, decoding the publishing, uh, digital publishing landscape. And we covered, you know, various topics around how we work with platforms, you know, how do you grow sustainable audiences, things like that. And um, we're very conscious that that was almost impossible for our, you know, Scottish members to come along to. So we've actually recorded that and we're, providing it specifically as a member benefit to, to some of our members. So, yeah, uh, you know, it's kind of a mix of just making it as accessible as possible. One of the things, um, as I suppose one of the PPA's big achievements recently has been the, gosh, not recently, it's probably three or four years ago now, it's been the, ax, the tax campaign with the, um, yep. the, the digital 
um, publications. Is there anything, I suppose, government facing that you're lobbying for at the moment with what state the government is in? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, our public affairs uh, lead and, you know, the, the, the team in, in, in general were kind of frazzled around that piece because obviously, you know, there's ministers that they've really kind of worked hard to meet with and they're no longer, you know, in place anymore. So um, that that whole thing will settle down, right? And But we will continue with some sort of big themes. I think, you know, two of the big ones that I probably mentioned is um, – you know, the online safety bill. So there was a lot of consultation with our membership around that. And, you know, we put forward our, our view on that. And um, uh, I know there's some ongoing work in that space. And then obviously, you know, the formation of the DMU was a big one. Um, and, and making sure that they've got the power to allow us to have a fair exchange with some of the larger um, uh, platforms. So absolutely, I th- but I think that, you know, our public affairs work is very much shaped by our members' business models. And, um, you know, we've got, we've got Sebastian is our uh, public affairs lead um, uh, within the PPA. And, um, you know, he he's really been active with um, almost public affairs as a service, I would say, in terms of, you know, getting get in touch with members and really just helping them to understand some of the big things that are going on and how they can get involved and have their voice heard as well. So, yeah, it, it's it's very much, you know, the lobby is very much a key part of what we do because actually, you know, that's that's a USP, right, of an association in, in terms of sort of bringing bringing the industry together to have a, a sort of a larger voice together. Um, uh, but, you know, it's it's not going to be everything we do. It's kind of a mix of, um, you know, all of the different things that fall into our strategy. Yeah. Um, the idea of sort of forcing Google and Facebook to pay publishers for content, um, <laughs> it feels like that's a bit of a controversial one. Do you, I, I suppose, a lot of the members in agreement that's something that needs to happen? So I I don't think there's a a kind of a right answer to that one. I think what we've got to be careful we don't do is sort of bury our head in the sand and think that there is a a sort of a route around it. You know, these platforms exist and it's, it's about how do we create the best working relationship there to get the 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 right sort of value back from um, from the publishers. And that is basically what we're focused on, you know, getting to the getting to the bottom of. Um, and you mentioned earlier on that one of the things that publishers are discussing a lot is is this sort of idea of talent and and well talent and diversity. I'll, I'll ask the two questions separately. Um, how are you seeing publishers respond to the talent shortage? Is that something that's really affecting them? Um, so I, yeah, uh, it is very much affecting them. And I think you know what we've got to remember is that there's been a lot of investment made in. Um, certain businesses and definitely around sort of digital transformation in terms of product and technology and things like that and I think you know not having the right skills to be able to drive that forward is is affecting them right because it's it's slowing it down and I think just across the board you know there is a gap in um, especially around roles what we're hearing a lot on is roles like um, you know digital marketing data scientists um, uh, you know, SEO experts, things like that, which are probably not your, you know, when you think about 
publishing you know it, it it's it's such a varied landscape now as we've mentioned throughout this conversation and you know it's not just journalism and sales right it's kind of there's all these layers of skills and 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 sort of new careers that can be developed through our industry and i think you know there's a role to play in the ppa around how do we build better awareness around you know the variety of opportunities that come with our sector um you know and at at the moment what we're doing is a bit of an audit actually around um you know the the different universities and courses and you know uh uh six forms and colleges and things like that that are uh, are able to potentially you know potentially work with us in in helping us creating that better awareness uh, but also what are the um uh, what are the members doing? And there's some really interesting examples across our membership uh, where, you know, they are they are doing things to really drive through new talent. Um, you know, the Bowers come up a couple of times, actually, with the Bower Academy around... Um, mm. Uh, the you know the, the the way that they're working with the uh, the the apprentice funding, um, so I think I guess in short yes it's a problem but it's I guess it's only a problem if we're constantly fishing in the same pool right so part of this is what part does DE and I play into this um, and you know what is the role of the PPA in all of this as well to help um, I guess use our network to. Um, drive through a better awareness, but also um, actually drive through, you know, new talent into the sector. Yeah. And uh, some publishers have said that it's quite difficult to promote diversity when talent is in short supply. I suspect you're going to suggest that they actually work together more closely than people might think. I, I suppose, do you have any advice or case studies of places that are doing that well? Well, I mean, I think firstly, it's really important to remember that, you know, diversity and inclusion is is obviously not just a, an HR problem right or a, a people thing of course mm-hmm. people you know it, it, it it's related to talent and it's related to creating that sense of belonging and inclusion and that obviously has an effect on you know retention as well um, but you know it, it is important to remember that it goes much further than that. And, you know, I mentioned people, product, audience as our sort of three pillars. If you think about the product and how members are thinking about their product, you know, are websites accessible? Are the events accessible? You know, what sort of voices are we promoting on the different platforms? Um, You know, and, and on the audience front, you know, we've got really unique position, I suppose, to directly have an effect on, the, the wider population and uh, making sure that our images, our voices, our, you know, who who we're asking for commentary on, how we're measuring it. Um, it's the, These are all considerations, right, for both large and small publishers. Um, and I could absolutely sort of na- name, name pick uh, quite a few that are doing some fantastic work um, in this space. But there, there's, I think there is a role here for us all just to come together and, um, really drive it forward and that's going to help amplify all the you know all the work that um, members are doing individually as well and the last thing is we ask all our guests what the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you oh um well look I I do um really love a gritty drama right and I love a mini series I've, I remember watching things like you know 24 and I watched this Turkish drama for a while as well and you know it's just episode after episode and I, I've really not got time for that anymore so 
Um, yeah, it's all about about the miniseries. I, I watched Dope Sick recently. I don't, have you watched that one? No. So it, it's, a, I don't know, seven to eight part thing, a true story about a pharma company that introduced a new painkiller con- containing o- opioids. And, um, uh, you know, that all of the, the sales material and everything was about, you know, how you couldn't get addicted to it. And, you know, that basically um, large parts of the US all started getting sort of addicted to this painkiller. And I think it was quite haunting for me because it, it really, what I took away from it was, oh my God, you know, the power that some of these large corporations have can have an effect on nations, right? And, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the fact of, that they were actively going after buying up the people that were regulating them and supposed to be sort of keeping them in check, making sure they're, you know, behaving well. So it just, I guess it reminded me of a a bit of a cheesy Spider-Man phrase, right? Which is with great power comes great responsibility. And it's, uh, uh, yeah, I definitely went to bed that night thinking, oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely worth watch. I think Friday's the new Saturday. <laughs> you do it on fire. I do. I think Friday is the new Saturday. <laughs> okay, well, we might not do this <laughs> on a Friday forever or even ever again, considering the, this episode. But for now, thank you so much for listening and do stay safe in the heat. It's going to be ridiculous today, I assume. Yes. Bye. Have a good holiday, Esther. I will. It's only going to be 29 degrees on the coast. Whoop, whoop. Ta-ta.